This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here, and we've had a series of terribly interesting guests here who are really helping us think about how we're thinking, you know, how we use our minds with ourselves, how we use our minds in relationships with other people. I mean, what is more elemental than that question? I mean, what we do, how we think about our relationships. And today we have another guest, Rachel Heslin, who is going to talk to us a little bit about neurolinguistic programming and how we can rethink the structure of our relationships how it is related to issues of like victimhood, how we get stuck on happy places because we can't really reconceptualize what's just happened. And folks, this conversation is about a pandemic problem that we see all over the place every day, starting in early childhood. So we'll really enjoy listening to you. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on board. Thank you for inviting me. It's going to be so much fun. So I'm going to do this brief uh, supportive note from our sponsors, and then we'll introduce Rachel in more carefully. So Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved, targeted laboratory evidences, mind science details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond the standards that currently exist of guesswork, guesswork, guesswork. They also provide, this is important, multiple training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use that data effectively. Check out their website for references and testing details. And folks, take note. They have a rotating opportunity for you to get a free test from them. And these tests are valued over $200 to sometimes $400. The issue is I have to go in there, look at what's up for that week, enter the, uh, really it's a giveaway, the drawing, and you might win one of those tests. And their tests are state-of-the-art. We use them all day, every day. We're so happy that they're sponsors with us. Where are you going to go when you listen to this? GreatPlainsLaboratory.com. That's an S on Great Plains. Laboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal, CBJ. So why not give it a shot? We look forward to hearing how you do with it over there. So let me tell you about Rachel. Rachel's so much fun to talk to her. I only talked to her for two minutes before we got started. And I'm telling you, you're going to enjoy listening to her. She has been immersed in the study of psychology for over 35 years. But I'm telling you, folks, she does not look that old here on the (laughs) video. Her father, who is a clinical psychologist, taught his children his craft such that Rachel was first introduced to neurolinguistic programming concepts when she was, get this folks, only nine years old. And then she began performing parts work and refining her reframing skills since the age of 11. She's been at this for a while. Her article on growing up in this type of environment appeared in the official Milton Erickson Foundation newsletter. And anybody that had been around this business for any kind of period of time knows the significant impact that Milton Erickson's had on the evolution of mind science. 
She has also facilitated trainings for the Southern California Society for the Ericksonian Psychotherapy and Hypnosis Group, helping teach therapists how to incorporate storytelling techniques into a clinical setting. Now, listen, folks, here's a storyteller who knows storytelling. Who wouldn't want to hang in there for this one? So Rachel is currently the author of two books, Navigating Life, Eight Different Strategies to Guide Your Way, and Rituals of Release, How to Make Room for Your Own New Life. I put own in there. How to Make Room for Your New Life. Uh, Rituals of Release is the first book of her Making Peace with Your Past series of books. Upcoming books in the series include The Power of Self-Forgiveness, Deep Sorrow, Greater Joy, Healing Through Grief. I mean, she's covering the waterfront. I can see we're going to have to have you back, Rachel, because <laughs> we're not going to cover it in an hour, girl. I mean, this is you're, you're, on a, you're coming at it from very deep mavenhood, and we're really looking forward to hearing. So, yeah, it did pique my curiosity reading about your father and you at nine years old. I mean, how did your esteemed, smart, as they say in the business, granular father, get down to the details with a nine-year-old girl. How did that happen? Well, I still, I remember he went to a Bandler and Grinder workshop in the 70s, and he came home talking about how the word should sets up all of these things in our brain and to try to avoid using the word and thinking of different ways of saying it. And yeah, I was nine. <laughs> he would just talk about how we see the world. I think the greatest impact that it's had on me and my evolution as a person was the awareness of myself as the observer. Mm -hmm. Most people, they go through life and they just experience as it is. But there was always that part of me that was watching myself experience and was curious and was running experiments of how, if I look at it differently, does it feel different? Would it have a different impact? Mm -hmm. So I think that's the greatest impact that that type of a philosophy being instilled in me at such a young age has had on me throughout my life. That is so interesting. What a way to start a conversation. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine you coming in, you know, you don't know this about me, but I love words and I'm so tied up with linguistics oh, and yeah. reductionistic thinking and non-Aristotelian thinking. I mean, you would, have you met, have you read Korsivsky, Science no. and Sanity? No, no you're going to love this book because- oh, cool. It's right up your alley, okay? It changed my life back in many, many years ago, back in the uh, 60s. But it has to do with uh, not thinking reductionistically, which is what should, would. Those imperative words are reductionistic yeah. words. And in Korsivsky's thinking, they're time-bound. And yeah. time-bound is reptilian because mm. then time-bound does not have the complexity of the circumstances which you were thinking about when you became an observational little girl. You said, look, there's other circumstances going on here. Sorry. See, I, I mentioned before we started this recording that I'm quite capable of going off on tangents. One of the things that I've noticed about the word should is that it implies its opposite. Anytime you use the word should, it's usually not a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. you're doing is you're reinforcing the thing that you don't want. If you're saying it should be this way, yeah. the implication is, but it's not. And it stops there. 
Yeah. As opposed to looking at it as, I would prefer it not be this way. Now that it is, what can I do about it? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, really, a, I experienced the same thing just to, uh, pardon me for going off on my own self, but just to bond with you a little bit on this because we never talked about it before. But this was going on and still goes on today, every day in recovering uh, places all over the United States. You know, you're only an alcoholic. Uh, Don't drink. and Don't whole- think of the elephant in the room. Yeah, right. So I'll be quiet, but I want to hear from you. So that was very interesting because then you as a little girl, you must have been a challenge for your friends as a kid because you would have been so deep. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, who is this person? She's 35, but she's only 10. Yeah. So sometimes I, but I was still figuring my own self out and I had my own stuff I was going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. So then, then did you then, as you, you because you were obviously interested about interested in it at a very early age. So then, were you always thinking about this path, or did you start thinking about other parallel paths like medicine or whatever? Actually, interestingly enough, I wasn't. This actually came to me relatively late in life as a career path for some reason. I had gotten it in my head that there were all of these reasons why it wasn't a good thing for me to do professionally. And this is, I'm trying to frame this in the way that has a moral and a teaching, but you know, it just comes down to the fact that we're all human. We all have assumptions that we don't realize are there. Mm-hmm, and for mm-hmm. the longest time, I had somehow assumed that if I really enjoyed something, it was wrong to get paid for it. Oh, hey, that is not an uncommon thought. Yeah. <laughs> and, then it, it, and eventually it, I realized, you know, that's kind of setting yourself up for misery. So I, I, I have since realized that I really enjoy helping people understand their lives in such a way that they can make choices that move them forward, that help them be happy. And if people find benefit from this, I have gotten to the point where I'm actually okay with them showing their appreciation financially. (laughs) You've accepted that. Exactly. But that that took a while for me to get there. (laughs) So do you, apropos of that, so I know you do teaching, but you then do coaching as well. How does that, how does that all work? Well, the the coaching that I do, I don't do long-term one-on-one coaching. The coaching that I really enjoy is working with people who know where they want to go. And for some reason, there's just something that they just keep running against. They just keep smacking into it. And I have intensive like full day sessions where we go through and look at, okay, what are the underlying issues? What are the internal value conflicts that you don't realize have been setting yourself up? I mean, if I were counseling myself, an example of something that would come up would be that belief that if I enjoy doing something, I shouldn't get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Yes. mm -hmm. That's the type client that I love working with because they're motivated, they're self-aware, they just can't see something themselves and they would benefit from 
a mirror who knows how to see things differently because sometimes you're just too close to it. You don't recognize that this thing that's always been a part of you doesn't need to be there or isn't what you think it is. And it helps to have someone else look at it and show you and then go, oh, okay. And things just flow from there. I mean, that is so true. We've seen that happen. A person just gets, they actually have a, a certain abiding element of denial about patterns that are unconsciously, pre-consciously superimposed in their own internal value system of what the, oh, yeah. the, the meaning of life, whatever. Go ahead, please. Okay. First of all, just on a, I, I just want to give this as a preface. I believe that as human beings, we are not capable of fully understanding capital T truth. I think we all have, a, each of us has like a little bit of it, but so much of it is like the story of the three blind men and the elephant. One of them absolutely insists that an elephant is like a tree trunk because he happens to be touching the leg. Mm-hmm. Another it says no the elephant's a snake, someone mm-hmm. says it's a rope or it's a wall. We are not capable of knowing truth. Therefore, I do not have a vested interest in trying to convince anybody I'm right, because I'm well aware there's a possibility I could be absolutely wrong about everything. <laughs> For all I know, The Matrix was a documentary. I accept that as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what I prefer to focus on is consistency and utility. Consistency is when you look, is there external evidence that supports my premise? Does it make sense? Does it fit together? And the utility is, are we, does it get you where you want to go? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's my basic philosophy that underlines most of what I do. Well, you know, what occurs to me there is a, is a quote by Lewis Mumford. in the Pentagon of Power. He said, show me the records of maintenance and I'll show you the nation that will survive. Yeah. And that was really a consistency remark. Yeah. The consistent, well, that, that goes back to consistency is in terms of habits. What do you actually do? Which is, this is, it's kind of different threads are coming together. What I'm, I'm currently fascinated about is how to normalize certain behaviors or mindsets that we've come to consider negative because what a it's back to if one of my premises you mentioned Milt Erickson Milton Erickson mm-hmm. uh, he was actually a mentor of my father's one of his philosophies that impacted me was the idea that none of us are broken we just don't always have access or recognize all the resources we have that are just available to us. Mm-hmm. They, we just can't access them at certain times. So one of my premises going from that is everything that appears to be negative actually has a positive intention. And if, if that is true, if you're looking at supposedly negative things, under what circumstances could they be seen as actively beneficial. I think that was a little convoluted, but... Not at all. That, Not that at sense. all. No, I, that was... You're saying there are relationships, there are system, systematic relationships. 
Yeah. And my interest, I I majored in social psychology because I'm fascinated by the interrelationships, not just of our internal, but looking at groups, how our interactions with others impact how we see ourselves. How do we interact with ourselves? From that, take, for example, something like self-sabotage. I don't think it exists. I think self-sabotage is actually inelegant self-protection. Interesting. Yeah, let's elaborate on that one. I mean, that's a nice little leap. Now, where are we going to go with it? Very interesting. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, go back to Virginia Satir's work. We're looking at parts where the humans seeing the psyche as essentially a committee of different parts, each of whom is concerned about something else. They're trying to accomplish something else, and they don't always work together. So what happens, take a scenario of self-sabotage. You're about to do something really amazing. And you've been working towards this amazing thing for a really long time, heart and soul, and you're just coming up to it. And it's almost like you're watching yourself do things. It's almost like you're watching yourself from the outside and you can see yourself doing things that are going against this goal that you've had. It looks like you're sabotaging yourself. But what's usually actually happening is there is a part of yourself that is afraid of what might happen if you do do this supposedly amazing thing. Maybe there is part of you that's afraid that you won't be able to live up to it, that you'll fail, that people will laugh at you, you will be exposed as a fraud. Maybe there's this big promotion at work where you're afraid if you get that promotion, you're going to be working 80-hour weeks and never see your family again. The part that is triggering those actions against what you think you're going for is generally trying to protect you from what might come next. I'm going to dumb it down a little bit here. Okay. No, because what you're saying is very clear, and I, I shouldn't say dumb it down, but I'm, I think it has to do with a self-protection and to really be, and, and I'm hesitating a little bit because you said it so well, but, but the bottom line is it's almost a fear of change because on some level, you're going to become a different personality and all yeah. the nuances of everything that that might imply then would be terrifying because all the various grids that support you in this previous identity would in fact be lost. You'd be taking a bath. You know, you would be having some transformational experience that's it's coming, it's forthcoming that you may not be able, as you said, to say. Yeah. It has something to do with your, with the process of change, which is. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't th- thought of it in those particular terms, but when you frame it on a larger scale like that, it does, it resonates with the statement in order for the butterfly to be born, the caterpillar must die. Yes. There will be a, a, whatever change comes, it means letting go of something else. Mm-hmm. And that can be scary because we don't know what's next. It reminds me of Ernst Becker's book, The Denial of Death. Now, this is a little deep, okay? (laughs) Okay. But this was a favorite of mine in psychoanalysis, and it's really right on the same theme, so forgive me for bringing it up, but I haven't really talked with anybody about it for many years. But his point was in the book, which is just a very interesting book, is the way we struggle our whole lives with dying in the first place. 
in the process of denying that we are going to die, we're dancing around all these different realities in the same way that we're talking about right here in this very interesting conversation, because we don't want to have that other person that we were no longer be with us. And that's just, it's an element of our, of ourselves that is endearing and warm and we're safe and comfortable with. We go after this other person. Are we being disingenuous? Are we doing something that's false to our, our underlying system? Are we doing something that's going to damage us in some way? Yeah, because we have to be willing to be messy. We mm-hmm. have to be, and, and some of it, I think, there are two different things. Some of it comes down to identity. Who are we? A lot of us spend a, put a lot of energy into defining who we are in relationship to other people, other people's opinions, who they think we are. We say, no, we're not that, but then we're defining ourselves as a not. This actually goes into something else I've been looking at, where I talk about normalizing negative things. Something that that you hear a lot of is don't be a victim, of castigating the victim mentality. You need to take responsibility for your life. And this was something else where I asked myself the question, if it is true, if my premise is correct that all supposedly negative things have positive intentions, it's that same question. Under what circumstances would having a victim mentality be beneficial? Yeah. I mean, it's a very relevant, reasonable question. I was thinking about it. If you believe that the only alternative to thinking of yourself as a victim is to believe that you deserve to have bad stuff happen to you. Which one would you choose? <laughs> right. So yeah. it's, I've mentioned my, my father's a clinical psychologist. He's done a lot of work dealing with clients who've had trauma, childhood, sexual abuse, all that sort of thing. He actually identified that there are four different levels that you need to pass through when you're coming back from abuse. Because the first level is that fear that it's your fault, Mm -hmm. that you deserve to have terrible stuff happen to you. Mm -hmm. The step up from that is like, no, you did not deserve to have it happen to you. You were a victim. It happened to you. It was not your fault. The step above that is survivor. You're not just a victim, but you survived what was done to you or what happened to you. You have moved beyond that and you are strong and you can, you're still alive. You're still moving. And the fourth level of that is what he calls beyond survivor, which is where you acknowledge, yes, this stuff happened to me, but it no longer defines who I am. I think it's important to recognize that in a lot of situations, we need to move through these levels. And if you try to skip one of the levels and go straight from, oh, I'm something happened to me, but I'm strong and I made through it, there can still be that part of you that believes, but it doesn't matter because I deserved it. And when you suppress thoughts and beliefs like that, instead of acknowledging them and working through them, they can come up and bite you throughout your life. 
That is so very true, and it was so excellently said, and thank you so much for sharing those steps. I mean, that is so interesting. You know, I think of how many times it would have been great to know that in my own therapeutic adventures with other people and with myself in my own lifetime. You know, when you actually think about events that occurred which were traumatic and you've been trying to figure them out and remain stuck in them for a long period of time on some, I think the thing that was really where I get stuck is I get into an adversary role. Mm. uh, So I'm no longer the victim. I'm going to kick his butt. If I ever get a chance to see him again, I'm going to do something negative to him, which of course is still being lost in the game. And for me, the goal is to get to that point of not allowing yourself to be defined by others. Yeah, yeah. But it's difficult. I mean, I, I say that, but the truth is that human beings are social creatures. We are evolutionary. <laughs> yeah, I like that. that <laughs> we are designed, mm-hmm. or however you want to do it, yeah. to work with other human beings. Yes. In order to play well with others, we learn what our role is based upon interactions with others. How other people treat us helps inform how we think we should be treated. It goes the other way. How people act is how we learn how to treat them. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've met someone who's always hangdog and always everything's so miserable. And after a while of being around them, you just, you you feel like, well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it, it is a, it's almost like a, a neural resonance thing yeah. of yeah. living up to or down to or in with. some way yeah. with other people's yeah. expectations. And it's a give and take. And it, because it happens on such a subconscious level, most of the time we don't recognize it. I see so many people who are saying, well, you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't call me that. Something that was very challenging for me to learn was to allow other people their reactions. Another way, because one of the ways that this manifested in my own life is wanting other people to be happy. I wanted them to think well of me. You talk, uh, one of the things, another supposedly negative, being a people pleaser, that's a survival instinct. That goes back to childhood. If your parents or the people who took care of you didn't love you, they could abandon you and you would die. You don't want to be disappointing the ones who could leave you on the curb. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not a conscious voice, but it's that visceral understanding that we are dependent upon other people. What we need to do is bring that to the forefront, to consciousness. I don't believe in this is good, this is bad. That doesn't make sense to me. Right, right. It's a matter of consciousness and it's a matter of utility and deliberate choice. Once you pull up and say, okay, I, have, I see this pattern that I've been doing. What, is, what are the feelings here? Mm-hmm. Like I, I used to constantly pull myself back because I was afraid that if I didn't tell people what they wanted to hear, they would get upset and then it would be awful. Once I started being honest, saying, you know, this is what I actually feel. This is what I actually think. Sometimes 
people would get upset. And mm-hmm. I learned that I could survive other people's being upset. Yes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enjoyable. But what it did is it strengthened my own integrity. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it improved my relationships, even with those people who were initially upset. Yes. I mean, in some way, this goes back to the should. When I was telling people what I thought they wanted to hear, it was a should, and shoulds are essentially a denial of reality. So Mm -hmm. there was no honesty and integrity in the communication. Once I let go of trying to get other people to respond a certain way and just said, hey, here is what I am presenting, it opened the door for true communication of two people connecting with one another, I became more capable of listening. I wasn't afraid of their reaction. I replaced that fear with curiosity. And the more I allowed myself to be myself, the easier it was for me to allow others to be themselves. So well said. And you know, the utilitarian value of it, and this is bringing it down a little bit, but it's it's really an internal education. It's a self-management, a learning experience when you actually depersonalize it sufficiently so that you can then recognize your own internal integrity vis-a-vis that experience or that person. That yes, part of it is the relationship that you have with that person. But even more importantly is the abiding relationship that you have with yourself, whatever that next venture is, because you have an internal system that is now lit up and has the radar lit up on the next interface down the road. And you're more prepared for whatever that next eventuality is for the previous blind side that you had that you didn't know that you had. Mm -hmm. That would be a strong part of the utilitarian value of it. Now, listen, we got to take a break. I am so much enjoying listening to you. I really hate to stop the conversation. (laughs) You're actually mesmerizing in, and not in terms of putting a person to sleep, but the way you (laughs) articulate things so effectively and so in such a connected way. And and you have just a great way of presenting. I want to thank you for just those things that you were talking about. And I, and I do apologize for interrupting them. Just the question that I want to ask you when we get back, because just the way you're talking about it, and this is going to be a little bit of a challenging question because I'm thinking about and putting myself in your shoes while you're talking about this. And you're so open about your own learning experience. I'm going to see where you are with this one. One of the things that I think has been so helpful for me is to really see where my blind spots were and what I did about them. And so what I'd like to do is see if you would be willing when we get back to hit a learning experience for you with a person that surprised you because you're a very well-educated person. You're very deep and where we all go into things and you think it's one way and it turns out another one and you get surprised. I think that might be of interest because if a person, if this person, whoever that person is, if that circumstance could surprise you, (laughs) then we we can definitely all learn from it. So Folks, we'll be back in just a minute. We'll see whether this is too challenging (laughs) for Rachel. So we'll take a break now. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. 
psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, we're back, folks. Is this a deep conversation or what? Rachel Heslin is talking to us about such a deep, meaningful, I mean, it's one of these things you just want to go back and listen to because you just ran that last piece of thoughts, a selection of thoughts and put them together. That particular series of thoughts is so absolutely meaningful for everybody in their own lives. I mean, every day we have an opportunity to learn from that kind of really beautifully said and uh, understandably, it's like a grid that's up there. That's a workable grid if you decide to use it and you actually take the responsibility for actually using it. So the question that I was going to ask you is if you had a problem, Rachel, or I shouldn't say a problem, an interesting challenge because it wouldn't be, all these things are not problems. They're just like learning experiences really. So a problem is really not a problem if it's a learning (laughs) But where you were surprised, if you had any come to mind like that, the question we were talking about. Oh, yeah. I talk about liking premises and and looking for consistency. I've had a couple of rather significant, humbling experiences where I was going off of one premise and it turned out to be completely wrong. I'm trying trying to figure out how to articulate the before after, but there was someone I was working with that I made assumptions that they were coming from a certain set of assumptions themselves, that they were coming from a a place of fear, that they were projecting things, and that they were, basically, I thought they were coming from somewhere that ended up being completely different from what was actually going on with them. So, Everything that I thought they were doing, I was taking as they were fighting me, they were projecting terrible things on me, they were doing, and it was all, it was very frustrating. Then I learned some things about their background, what their childhood had been like, what sort of things they were accustomed to, and all of a sudden, I realized, oh, when I do this, they think it means that I'm doing the same thing that their parents did to them. And once I saw things from that perspective, I realized, 
I actually had been hurting them. I had not taken into account the impact of what I was doing on them because of their own stories from their childhood. Could Even you be though, a little more explicit in that? So yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out, there, there's like some confidentiality things. I'm oh, trying I got to you. Trying to out, so yeah. Yeah. Well, this is an opportunity for you to tell a story. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot of difficulty figuring out how to frame this in such a way that it actually makes a good example. Because for, for me, it was, it, the specifics were not as important as the humility of learning that I don't know everything. Yeah, yeah. That I, mean, I can yeah, make I, assumptions uh-huh. that people are overreacting. Oh, it's just yeah. in their head. But it's not always just in their head. Even if it's not my intention to hurt somebody, if I don't listen to them when they say, ow, and figure out, okay, is there something that I could be doing differently to lessen that ow, then that's on me. Yeah, I totally agree with you about that. I And when you said the humility, I was synchronizing with you on that because I think that's kind of what I'm driving at. I think that's been the big learning experience for me with a number of individuals where I made an assumption that I was going along pretty well. And and I thought I was Mr. Helpful, you know, I'm Mr. Nice Guy being helpful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it turned inside out because being nice was not necessarily the play that was needed to help them make progress yeah. in some way. And and, you know, I had to see where I was actually limiting their progress by what I was doing. And, you know, that, that does happen. I actually had something on a, I don't know if it would be considered sociological or political, but I was a participant in some discussions where some people who were part of traditionally marginalized groups were expressing a lot of frustration and anger. And I was one of those white people who was telling them, you really need to calm down and express it in a way that people can hear you and that sort of thing. And I Mm -hmm. honestly believed I was being helpful. Yeah, yeah. And eventually I realized, yeah, not so much Mm -hmm. because I was not modeling what it is that they needed. What they needed was for someone to actually listen and care. Mm-hmm. They didn't need someone to stand outside yeah. and shout out stuff from the sidelines. They yeah, wanted yeah. to be seen as human beings. And mm-hmm. I failed that for like yeah, way yeah. too long. Well, you know, it's funny because the psychology, the things that we know and we're trying to be helpful actually can be so paternalistic at times, you know, and exactly. you have no idea that you're being paternalistic because you think you're being quote unquote edifying. And yet what happens is you're really closing down the conversation in a, in a maladaptive way. And just what you said, I've done that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So that's really, that's really a challenge. Let me ask you another question because yeah. I think that is very helpful because what, what you just said is, hey, even when we're trying really hard, we can bring a perspective in that we're not aware of. And even when we're being helpful, we can bring a perspective in that we're not aware of that is contradictory to where the, where the mission is. So, Tell us a little more, if you will, about your father. I thought that that little discussion was very helpful. And I think then what his contribution was and his, you know, he's got a website. We're going to have both of these websites listeners at the end. So stay tuned because we're going to bring this down to an end point where we talk about both websites and where to go and what to do. But Rachel, if you could tell us a little bit about 
what he did with his career. Is he still working? Oh, yes. Uh, he is currently the clinical director of the Integrative Medical Institute of Orange County in Southern California. He does the, the mental health parts of the institute. Oh, yeah. A working therapist. He's mm -hmm. also, yeah, he's the, the editor of the Erickson Foundation newsletter and has been involved with there. Back in the 70s, he and some of his friends would trip out to Phoenix like every month to go study under the master. And he oh, yeah. Excited about that. That would have been so much fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, because he was apparently so wonderful to be around because he was so unreservedly insightful. He'd just like pop it right out and it would like... <laughs> And apparently people would just be transfixed with a couple of words like, oh, yeah, that is the way it is. You know? yeah, is your father that way? Does he do that? Yeah, he's, my father is very quirky. I adore him. What I think I love most about my father as a psychologist is his enthusiasm for working with the client's paradigm. He doesn't have a vested interest in, okay, this is what you need to do in order to get well. Because it's from him that I got the idea that the idea is not to be a specific way, but is what you're doing useful? Is it getting you where you want to go? If a client believes in past lives, okay, he'll work with that. Yeah. If they believe in like demonic possessions, he'll work with that. He used to have a lot of referrals for multiple personality disorder. His way of dealing with it was not to try to integrate into a single personality, but just get them working together. Oh, that's just interesting. Make, yeah. And it, it's kind of like the parts work. Oh, that's you're looking at different parts. They just happen to have different names and, and personalities and have them work together so that you can function in society. That would be an interesting, that would be a whole interesting conversation. I probably need to ring him up. <laughs> it would be an interesting interview, you know, that particular thing. We've had several people with DID come on board. And, yeah, but that sounds like a lot of fun. It'd be fun hanging out with him. I can imagine dinner conversations would be great. Oh, I mean, yeah. I love bouncing ideas off of him and helping. I mean, it, it was the whole idea of talking about instead of beliefs, having a premise that is the result of a conversation I had with him. We were bouncing words back and forth, and that one really resonated as having the nuance I was looking for. And I might not have found it if I hadn't been talking with him. So yeah. we, we hang out in grandma's kitchen and talk about stuff. <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. Yeah. So then let's wind up a little bit. We, we're, we're going on a little bit further than we ordinarily do, but I think it's very hard, and I think it is hard to wind down with a person like yourself and it's not through any fault of yours it's the richness of the material that you're sharing and your articulate style and delivering it it's also it's great fun i said mesmerizing i don't like really it has a double implication but it's mesmerizing in a constructive way because it all hangs together so well it's like a great grid the way you're saying it it all sort of shines in the darkness when you're saying it the way you're saying it. I really appreciate that. So but in closing, let's talk about a way people could work with you, how they get in contact with you. Let's talk a little bit about those websites and what those websites are about so they know what they would be getting into going over there. My website is thefullnessofyourpower.com. 
Mm-hmm. And it's based on the idea that as you get all your parts to play nicely together so that you're not fighting against yourself and you really give yourself permission to be yourself, you can become more powerful than you realize. Mm-hmm. That has uh, links on there to either contact me. I have links to my books are on there. And I also have some links to some free resources, including some online presentations that I've done and some trainings that I'm, I'm working on. So that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Okay. And another something else I wanted to mention, you said you liked the four stages of getting beyond Survivor. Oh, that was so interesting, yeah. Yeah, my father has a website which is beyondsurvivor.com that has training materials specifically aimed at therapists who are working with clients who have PTSD or are struggling with abuse from abuse and that sort of thing. Very specific design for the clinical audience to give them tools to work with their clients. Well, that sounds great. You got to, everybody's busy at work. The guy's not going to retire. I do not see my father retiring because he's having way too much fun. I'm telling you, when you're having fun and your life purpose is is being realized in some way, it's so satisfying to actually make those connections and see people change. Oh, yeah. See them actually feel uh, increased sense of self and and responsibility and and self management. You know, it's just great. This has been really great. I'm so we'll put the books up and have them. We'll have the links on the website. And I'm going to send you a note tomorrow morning to let you know uh, when all this is going to be published and so on and so forth. I'm, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on board. It's been a rich experience. I mean, your linguistic skills pull the whole thing together <laughs> in a very interesting way. I mean, there's no hard spots in there. I mean, it all sort of flows together. You really express yourself so well. really appreciate it. Thank you. So It's been fun. <laughs> well, we'll have you back sometime for sure. So all you have to do is think about what I need to know next. (laughs) And we'll definitely have you back. Thanks, Rachel Heslin. Thank you so much. You have a good one. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.